Hello, and welcome to Hari Cuts. I'm Hari Stephen Kumar, and this is the pandemic season of this podcast. It's uh, episode 13. It is Wednesday, April 22nd. It is still a global pandemic out there. Uh, and so, of course, here we are uh, where I'm reading out loud in audiobook style with my own commentary, sections of the essay, a supposedly fun thing I'll never do again. Uh, I started doing this about two weeks ago. Here we are on section 13. This is the last section of this essay. This is this is the big one. This is the last one. I have no idea how many of you are still listening, how many of you are actually have listened to all the episodes uh, <laughs> of this essay so far. Uh, you are gluttons for punishment If uh, for those of you who have stuck with me this far. Um, but I'm not going to lie. This coming section, this is a big one. I've, I've actually been preparing um, all day for this. Um, uh, I, have to, I have to give you some heads up on this one. Uh, this particular episode, this is going to be the longest episode so far. I think the longest that I've ever really recorded. Um, yesterday's was long. Yesterday's was 57 minutes. This is going to be even longer. I don't even know if Anchor.fm is going to even allow this long of an episode on there. Um, I initially thought I was going to try to split this up into into a couple of different episodes, but in the bloody-mindedness with which I started this, there's nothing for it but to just go on. This episode is going to be one whole episode of just reading this one section. Um, here's what I'd advise for you. I would say um, prepare yourself a drink. And settle down. Um, this is an episode that will... <laughs> I've, I've, I don't believe any of you can actually listen to this whole thing in one sitting. Um, I'm going to try to record this in one sitting. I've got with me uh, a glass of, of whiskey. Uh, I've made myself a little whiskey mule. And I'm going to make a little drinking game out of this. There are... Just to give you a sense, there are 33 pages ahead. There are 48 footnotes ahead, and I'm going to take a sip at every footnote, and you might want to do a drinking game right along with me and do that. It's going to be a marathon. Here we go with David Foster Wallace, a supposedly fun thing I'll never do again. From 1995, it turns out. Let's go. Every night, the ten-port cabin steward, Petra, when she turns down your bed, leaves on your pillow, along with the day's last mint and celebrity's printed card wishing you sweet dreams in six languages, she leaves you on your pillow the next day's Nader Daily, a fatic little four-page ersatz newspaper printed on white vellum in a navy blue font. The ND has historical nuggets on upcoming ports, pitches for organized shore excursions, and specials in the gift shop, and stern stuff in boxes with malaprop headlines like Quarantines on Transit of Food and Misuse of Drug Acts 1972. Footnote 90. Ah, ah, but ah, you don't have to drink just yet. I'm going to take a sip. But this is a really long footnote that I'm going to defer and come back to a little later. Okay. Right now, 
It's Thursday, 16 March, 0710 hours, and I'm alone at the Five Star CR's early seating breakfast. Table 64's waiter and towering busboy hovering nearby. Footnote 91. Drink. I'm going to... Footnote 91. It's a total mystery when these waiters sleep. They serve at the midnight buffet every night and then help clean up after. And then they appear in the five-star CR in clean tuxes all over again at 0630 hours the next day. Always so fresh and alert, they look slapped. End of footnote. We've rounded the final turn and are on our return trajectory toward Key West. And today is one of the week's two, quote, at-sea days, when shipboard activities are at their densest and most organized. And this is the day I've picked to use the Nader Daily as a Bedecker as I leave cabin 1009 for a period well in excess of half an hour and plunge headfirst into the recreational fray and keep a precise and detailed log of some really representative experiences as together now we go, quote, in quest of managed fun. So everything that follows from here on out is from this day's P&D Precise and detailed experiential log. 06.45 hours. A triple ding from the speakers in cabin and halls, and then a cool female voice says, Good morning, the date, the weather, etc. She says it in a gentle, accented English, repeats it in an Alsatian-sounding French, and then again in German. She can make even German sound lush and post-coital. Hers is not the same PA voice as at Pier 21, but it's got the exact same quality of sounding the way expensive perfume smells. 0650 to 0705 hours. Shower, play with Alisco Sirocco hairdryer and exhaust fan and hair in bathroom mirror. Read from Daily Meditations for the Semiphobically Challenged. Go over Nader Daily with yellow highlighter pen. 0708 to 0730 hours. ES breakfast, early sitting breakfast, at table 64 in 5 star CR. Last night, everybody announced intentions to sleep through breakfast and grab some scones or something at the Windsurf Cafe later. So I'm alone at table 64 which is large and round and right up next to a starboard window. Table 64's waiter's name is, as mentioned before, Tibor. Mentally, I refer to him as the tipster, but never out loud. Tibor has dismantled my artichokes and my lobsters and taught me that extra well done is not the only way meat can be palatable. We have sort of bonded, I feel. He is 35 and about 5 foot 4 and plump, and his movements have the bird-like economy characteristic of small, plump, graceful men. Many-wise, Tibor advises and recommends, but without the hauteur that's always made me hate the gastropedantic waiters in classy restaurants. Tibor is 
omnipresent, without being unctuous or oppressive. He is kind and warm and fun. I, I sort of love him. His hometown is Budapest, and he has a postgraduate degree in restaurant management from an unpronounceable Hungarian college. His wife back home is expecting their first child. He is the head waiter for tables 64 through 67 at all three meals. He can carry three trays without precarity and never looks harried or on the edge the way most multi-table waiters look. He seems like he cares. His face is at once round and pointy and rosy. His tux never wrinkles. His hands are soft and pink, and his thumb-joint skin is unwrinkled, like the thumb-joint of a small child. Tibor's cuteness has been compared by the women at Table 64 to that of a button, but I have learned not to let his cuteness fool me. Tibor is a pro. His commitment to personally instantiating the nader's fanatical commitment to excellence is the one thing about which he shows no sense of humor. If you fuck with him in this area, he will feel pain and will make no effort to conceal it. See, for example, the second night, Sunday, at supper. Tibor was circling the table and asking each of us how our entree was, and, and we all regard, regarded this as just one of those perfunctory waiter questions, and, and we all perfunctorily smiled and cleared our mouths and said, fine, fine. And, and Tibor finally stopped and looked down at us, looked down at us all with a pained expression and changed his timber slightly, so it was clear he was addressing the whole table. Quote, Please, I ask each, is excellent? Please. If excellent, you say, and I'm happy. If not excellent, please. Do not say excellent. Let me fix. Please. There was no hauteur or pedantry as he addressed us. He just meant what he said. His expression was babe naked, and we heard him, and nothing was perfunctory again. Good old Wojtek, the towering bespectacled Pole, age 22 and at least 6 foot 8, Table 64's busboy, in charge of water, bread supply, crumb removal, and using a big tower of a mill to put pepper on pretty much anything that you don't lean forward and cover with your upper body. Good old Wojtek works exclusively with Tibor and they have an involved minuet of service that's choreographed down to the last pivot, and they speak quietly to each other in a slavicized German pigeon. You can tell they've evolved through countless quiet professional exchanges, and you can tell Wojtek reveres Tibor as much as the rest of us do. This morning, the tipster wears a red bow tie and smells faintly of sandalwood. Early seating breakfast is the best time to be around him because he's not very busy and can be initiated into chit-chat without looking pained at neglecting his duties. He doesn't know I'm on the nader as a pseudo-journalist. I'm not sure why I haven't told him. Somehow, 
I think it might make things hard for him. During ESB chit-chat, I never ask him anything about celebrity cruises or the nadir, footnote 92, uh, except for precise descriptions of whatever dorsal fins he has seen. End footnote. I never ask him anything about celebrity cruises or the nadir, not out of deference to Mr. Dermatitis's pissy injunctions, but because I feel like I'd just about die if Tibor got into trouble on my account. Tibor's ambition is someday to return to Budapest. Footnote 93, he pronounces the pest part of this, Prest, Budapest. Someday to return to Budapest for good, and with his nadir savings, open a sort of newspaper and beret-type sidewalk cafe that specializes in something called cherry soup. With this in mind, two days from now in Fort Lauderdale, I'm going to tip the tipster way, way more than the suggested $3 US per diem. Footnote 94. The last night's ND breaks the news about tipping and gives tactful suggestions on going rates. I'm going to balance out total expenses by radically under-tipping both the liplessly sinister maitre d' and our sommelier, an unctuously creepy Celonese guy the whole table has christened the Velvet Vulture. 08.15 hours. Catholic Mass is celebrated with Father Desandra. Location, Rainbow Room, Deck 8. Footnote 95. All bold-faced stuff is verbatim and sick from today's Nader Daily. And hardy note, what I'm going to do is every time he has one of those footnotes that he's taking uh, or uh, a title for a, uh, an agenda for the day that he's taking from the bulletin, I'm going to kind of read it out as if it's like from a PA announcement. 08.15 hours. Catholic Mass is celebrated with Father Desandre, location Rainbow Room, Deck 8. There is no chapel, per se, on the nadir. The father sets up a kind of folding credence table in the rainbow room, the most aftward of the fantasy deck lounges, done in salmon and serre yellow with dados of polished bronze. Genuflecting at sea turns out to be a tricky business. There are about a, a dozen people here. The father's backlit by a big port window and his homily is mercifully free of nautical puns or references to life being a voyage. The communal beverage is a choice of either wine or Welch's brand unsweetened grape juice. Even the nader's daily masses communion wafers are unusually yummy, biscuitier than your normal host, and with a sweet tinge to the pulp that it becomes in your teeth. Footnote 96. If Pepperidge Farm made communion wafers, these would be them. Cynical observations about how appropriate it is that a seven and sea luxury cruise's daily worship is held in an over-decorated bar seem too easy to take up space on. Just how a diocesan priest gets a seven and sea megacruiser as a parish, whether celebrity maybe has clerics on retainer, sort of like the army, and they get assigned to different ships in rotation, and whether the RC church gets paid, just like the other vendors 
who provide uh, service and entertainment personnel, etc., will, I'm afraid, be forever unclear. Father DeSander explains that he has no time after the recessional for professional queries because of all 900 hours wedding vow renewal with Father DeSandra. Same venue, same porta altar setup. No married couples show up to renew their wedding vows, though. There's me and Captain Video and maybe a dozen other Naderites sitting around in salmon chairs, and a beverage waitress makes a couple circuits with her visor and pad. And Father D.S. stands patiently in his cassock and white cope till 0920, but no older-type couples appear or step forward to renew. A few of the people in the RR sit in proximities and attitudes that show they're couples, but they sort of apologetically tell the father they're not even married. The surprisingly cool and laid-back Father D.S.'s invitation to make use of the setup and twin candles and priest with sacramentary book of rites open to just the right page produces some shy laughter from the couples, but uh, no takers. I don't know what to make of the WVR's no-shows in terms of death, despair, pampering, insatiability issues. Oh nine thirty hours. The library is open for checkout of games, cards, and books. Location: Library. Footnote ninety seven. Duh. Location: Library. Deck seven. The Nader's library is a little glassed-in salon set obliquely off Deck Seven's rendezvous lounge. The library is all good wood and leather and three-way lamping, an extremely pleasant place. But it's open only at weird and inconvenient times. Only one wall is even shelved, and most of the books are the sorts of books you see on the coffee tables of older people who live in condominiums near unchallenging golf courses, folio-sized, color-plated with titles like Great Villas of Italy and Famous Tea Sets of the Modern World, etc., but it's a great place to just hang around and moss out the library. Plus, this is where the chess sets are. This week also features an unbelievably large and involved jigsaw puzzle that sits about half done on an oak table in the corner, which all sorts of different old people come in and work on in shifts. There's also a seemingly endless game of contract bridge always going on in the card room right next door. And the bridge players' motionless silhouettes are always there through the frosted glass between library and CR when I'm mossing out and playing with the chess sets. The Nader's library's got cheapo Parker Brothers chess sets with hollow plastic pieces, which any good chess player's got to like. Footnote 98. Heavy, expensive, art-carved sets are for dorks. End of footnote. I'm not nearly as good at chess as I am at ping-pong, but I'm pretty good. Most of the time on the Nader, I play chess with myself, not as dull as it may sound. For I have determined that, no offense, the sorts of people who go on 7NC cruises tend not to be very good chess players. Today, however, is the day I am mated in 23 moves by a 9-year-old girl. Uh, let's not spend a lot of time on this. 
the girl's name is Deirdre. She's one of very few little kids on board, not tucked out of sight in Deck 4's daycare grotto. Footnote 99. This is something else Mr. Dermatitis declined to let me see. But by all reports, the daycare on these megaships is phenomenal, with squads of nurturing and hyperkinetic young daycare ladies keeping the kids manically stimulated for up to 10-hour stretches via an endless number of incredibly well-structured activities, so tuckering the kids out that they collapse mutely into bed at 20-hundred hours and leave their parents free to plunge into the ship's nightlife and do it all. End of footnote. Yeah, I'm going to drink. She's one of very few little kids on board not tucked out of sight in Deck 4's daycare grotto. Deirdre's mom never leaves her in the grotto, but also never leaves her side, and has the lipless and flinty-eyed look of a parent whose kid is preternaturally good at something. I probably should have seen this and certain other signs of impending humiliation as the kid first comes over, as I am sitting there trying a scenario where both sides of the board deploy a Queen's Indian and, and, and she tugs on my sleeve and asks if I'd maybe like to play. She, she really does tug on my sleeve and calls me Mr., and her eyes are roughly the size of sandwich plates. In retrospect, it occurs to me that this girl was a little tall for nine, and worn-looking, slump-shouldered, the way usually only much older girls get, a kind of poor psychic posture. However good she may be at chess, this is not a happy little girl. I don't suppose that's germane. Deirdre pulls up a chair and says she usually likes to be black and informs me that in lots of cultures, black isn't thanatotic or morbid, but is the spiritual equivalent of what white is in the U.S., and that in these other cultures, it's white that's morbid. I tell her, I already know all that. We start. I push some pawns, and Deirdre develops a knight. Deirdre's mom watches the whole game from a standing position behind the kid's seat, motionless, except for her eyes. Footnote 100. We're at 100 footnotes, folks. Drink two more. Footnote 100. The only chairs in the library are leather wing chairs with low seats, so only Deirdre's eyes and nose clear the board's table as she sits across from me, adding a Kilroyishly surreal quality to the humiliation. End of footnote. I know within seconds that I despise this mom. She's like some kind of stage mother of chess. Deirdre seems like an okay type, though. I've played precocious kids before, and at least Deirdre doesn't hoot or smirk. If anything, she seems a little sad that I don't turn out to be more of a stretch for her. My first inkling of trouble is on the fourth move, when I fianchetto, and Deirdre knows what I'm doing is fianchettoing, and uses the term correctly, again calling me mister. The second ominous clue is the way her little hand keeps flailing out to the side of the board after she moves, a sign that she's used to a speed clock. She 
swoops in with her developed QK and forks my queen on the twelfth move. And after that, it's only a matter of time. It doesn't really matter. I didn't even start playing chess until my late 20s. On move 17, three desperately old and related-looking people at the jigsaw puzzle table kind of totter over and watch as I hang my rook and the serious carnage matters starts. It doesn't really matter. Neither Deidre nor the hideous mom smiles when it's over. I smile enough for everybody. None of us says anything about maybe playing again tomorrow. 0945 to 1000 hours. Back briefly for psychic recharging in good old 1009 EP. I eat four pieces of some type of fruit that's like a tiny oversweetened tangerine and watch for the fifth time this week the velociraptors stalking precocious children in gleaming institutional kitchen part of Jurassic Park, noting an unprecedented sympathy for the velociraptors this time around. <laughs> 1,000 to 1,100 hours, three simultaneous venues of managed fun, all aft on deck nine. Darts tournament, take aim and hit the bullseye! Or... Shuffleboard shuffle, join your fellow guests for a morning game. Or, ping pong tournament, meet the crew staff at the tables. Prizes to the winners. Organized shuffleboard has always filled me with dread. Everything about it suggests infirm senescence and death. It's like it's a game played on the skin of a void, and the rasp of the sliding puck is the sound of that skin getting abraded away bit by bit. I also have a morbid but wholly justified fear of darts, stemming from a childhood trauma too involved and hair-raising to discuss here. Hari note, come on, David Foster Wallace, of course you can discuss it here. And as an adult, I avoid darts like cholera. What I'm here for is the ping-pong. I am an exceptionally good ping-pong player. The ND's use of tournament is euphemistic, though, because there are never any draw sheets or trophies in sight, and no other Naderites are ever playing. The uh, constant high winds on 9 aft may account for ping pong's um, light turnout. Today, three tables are set up well off to the side of the darts tournament, which, given the level of darts play over there, uh, that seems judicious. And the MV Nader's very own ping-pong ping pong pro, or 3P as he calls himself, stands cockily by the center table, amusing himself by bouncing a ball off the paddle between his legs and behind his back. He turns when I crack my knuckles. I've come to ping-pong three different times already this week, and nobody's ever here except the good old 3P, whose real first name is Winston. He and I are now at the point where we greet each other with the curt nods of old and mutually respected foes. Below the center table is an enormous box of fresh ping-pong balls, and apparently several more of these boxes are in the storage locker behind the golf drive net, which again seems judicious given the number of balls in each game that gets smashed or blown out to sea. Footnote 101. 
I imagine it'd be pretty interesting to trail a megaship through a 7NC cruise and just catalog the trail of stuff that bobs in its wake. And a footnote. They also have a big peg-studded board on the bulkhead's wall with over a dozen different paddles, both the plain wooden grip and head with thin skin of cheap pebbly rubber kind, and the fancy wrapped grip and head with thick mushy skin of unpebbled rubber kind, all in celebrities' snazzy white navy motif. Footnote 102. Only the fear of an impromptu Fort Lauderdale customs search and discovery keeps me from stealing one of these paddles. I, I confess that I, I did end up stealing the chamois eyeglass cleaners from 1009's bathroom, though maybe you're meant to take them home anyway. I, I couldn't tell whether they fell into the Kleenex category or the towel category. End of footnote. I am, as I believe I may have already stated, an extraordinarily fine ping-pong player. Footnote 103. I've sure never lost any prepubescent females in fucking ping-pong, I can tell you. End of footnote. It turns out that I'm an even finer ping-pong player outdoors in tricky tropical winds. And although Winston is certainly a good enough player to qualify as a 3P on a ship where interest in ping-pong is, shall we say, less than keen, my record against him thus far is eight wins and only one loss. With that one loss being not only a very close loss, but also consequent to a number of freakish gusts and a net that Winston himself admitted later may not, may not have been regulation ITTF height and tension. Winston is under the curious and false impression that we've got some kind of tacit wager going on, whereby if the 3P ever beats me three games out of five, he gets my full-color Spider-Man hat, which hat he covets, and which hat I wouldn't dream ever of playing serious ping-pong without. Winston only moonlights as a 3P. His primary duty on the Nader is serving as official cruise DJ in Deck 8's Scorpio Disco, where every night he stands behind an incredible array of equipment, wearing horn rim sunglasses and working both the CD player and the strobes frantically till well after 0200 hours which may account for a sluggish and slightly dazed quality to his AM ping-pong. He is 26 years old, and like much of the Nader's crews and guest relations staff, is good-looking in the vaguely unreal way soap opera actors and models and Sears catalogs are good-looking. He has big brown help-me eyes and a black fade, that's styled into the exact shape of a 19th century blacksmith's anvil. And he plays ping-pong with his thick-skinned paddle's head down in the chopsticky way of people who have received professional instruction. Outside and aft, the nader's engine's throb is loud and always sounds weirdly lopsided. 3P Winston and I have both reached that level of almost zen-like ping-pong mastery, where the game kind of plays us. The lunges and pirouettes and smashes and recoveries are automatic, outer instantiations of a kind of 
intuitive harmony between hand and eye and primal urge to kill. In a way, in a way that leaves our forebrains unoccupied and capable of idle chit-chat as we play. Like, uh, wicked hat. I want that hat. Boss hat. Can't have it. Or, wicked motherfucking hat. Spider-Man be dope. Footnote 104. Winston also seemed to suffer from the verbal delusion that he was an urban black male. I have no idea what the story is on this or what conclusions to draw from it. And I've been forgetting to drink after at, at every footnote. Drink. End of footnote. Wicked motherfucking hat. Spider-Man be dope. Sentimental value. Long story behind this hat. Insipidness notwithstanding, I've probably exchanged more total words with Winston on the Seven and Sea luxury cruise than I have with anybody else. Footnote 105. This is not counting my interfaces with Petra, which, though lengthy and verbose, tended, of course, to be one-sided, except for, Oh, you're a funny thing, you! End of footnote. As with good old Tibor, I don't probe Winston in any serious journalistic way, although, in this case, it's not so much because I fear getting the 3P in trouble, as because, nothing against good old Winston personally, He's not exactly the brightest bulb in the ship's intellectual chandelier, if you get my drift. E.g., Winston's favorite witticism when DJing in the Scorpio disco is to muff or spoonerize some simple expression and then laugh and slap himself in the head and go, Oh, easy for me to say. According to Mona and Alice, he's also unpopular with the younger crowd of the Scorpio disco, because he always wants to play top 40-ish homogenized rap instead of real vintage disco. Footnote 106. The single most confounding thing about the young and hip cruisers on the Nader is that they seem truly to love the exact same cheesy disco music that we who were young and hip in the late 70s loathed and made fun of. Boycotting prom when Donna Summer's MacArthur Park was chosen official prom theme, etc. End of footnote. It's also not necessary to ask Winston much of anything at all, because he's an incredible chatterbox when he's losing. He's been a student at the U of South Florida for a rather mysterious seven years, and has taken this year off to, quote, get fucking paid for a change for a while, unquote, on the Nader. He seems to have seen all manner of sharks in these waters, but his descriptions don't inspire much real confidence or dread. We're in the middle of our second game and on our fifth ball. Winston says he's had the chance to do some serious ocean-gazing and soul-searching during his off-hours these last few months, and has decided to return to USF in fall 95 and start college more or less all over this time majoring not in business administration, but in something he claims is called multimediated production. They have a department in that? Oh, it's this interdisciplinarian thing. It's going to be fucking fat. Homes, you know, CD-ROM and shit, smart chips, digital film and shit. 
I'm up 1812. Sport of the future. Winston agrees. It's where it's all going to be at. The highway. Interactive TV and shit. Virtual reality. Interactive virtual reality. I can see it now, I say. The game's almost over. The cruise of the future. The home cruise. The Caribbean luxury cruise you don't have to leave home for. Strap on the old goggles and electrodes and off you go. Word up. No passports. No seasickness. No wind or sunburn or insipid cruise staff. Total virtual motionless stay-at-home simulated pampering. Word. Footnote 107. Interfacing with Winston could be kind of depressing in that the urge to make cruel sport of him was always irresistible, and he never acted offended or even indicated that he knew he was being made sport of. And you went away afterward feeling like you'd just stolen coins from a blind man's cup or something. End of footnote. 11.05 hours. Navigation lecture. Join Captain Nico and learn about the ship's engine room, the bridge, and the basic nuts and bolts of the ship's operation. The MV Nader can carry 460,000 gallons of nautical-grade diesel fuel. It burns between 40 and 70 tons of this fuel a day, depending on how hard it's traveling. The ship has two turbine engines on each side, one big Papa, and one comparatively little son. Footnote 108. Choosing from among two to the four options, they can run on all four, or one Papa and one son, or two sons, etc. My sense is that running on sons instead of Papas is kind of like switching from warp drive to impulse power. And a footnote. Drink. Each engine has a propeller that's 17 feet in diameter and is adjustable through a lateral rotation of 23.5 degrees for maximum torque. It takes the Nader 0.9 nautical miles to come to a complete stop from its standard speed of 18 knots. The ship can go slightly faster in certain kinds of rough seas than it can go in calm seas. This is for technical reasons that don't fit on the napkin I'm taking notes on. The ship has a rudder, and the rudder has two complex alloy flaps that somehow interconfigure to allow a 90-degree turn. Captain Nico's English is not going to win any elocution ribbons, but he's a veritable blowhole of hard data. Footnote 109. Drink. The Nader has a captain, a staff captain, and four chief officers. Captain Nico is actually one of these chief officers. I do not know why he's called Captain Nico. And a footnote. He's about my age and height, but is just ridiculously good-looking, like an extremely fit and tan Paul Auster. Footnote 110. Drink. Something else I've learned on this luxury cruise is that no man can ever look any better than he looks in the white, full-dress uniform of a naval officer. Women of all ages and estrogen levels swooned, sighed, 
wobbled, lash batted, growled, and hubba hubbard when one of these navally resplendent Greek officers went by. A phenomenon that I don't imagine helped the Greeks' humility one bit. End of footnote. The venue here is Deck 11's Fleet Bar. Footnote 111. I'm going to actually defer this footnote and come back to this, at the end of this section. This is one of four footnotes that I'm going to defer. But one of the things you should know that in this footnote, he's going to describe uh, elegant tea time that's also going to happen at this fleet bar. And the germane thing is he's going to describe the incredible faux pas he commits by showing up to elegant tea time, not in a formal tux like he was supposed to bring, but in a t-shirt that looks like a tux. And that doesn't go well for him. So he's going to refer to that later on, but I'll come back to this footnote later. The venue here is Deck 11's Fleet Bar, all blue and white and trimmed in stainless steel and so abundantly fenestrated that the sunlight makes Captain Nico's illustrative slides look ghostly and vague. Captain Nico wears Ray-Bans, but without a fluorescent cord. Thursday, 16 March, is also the day my paranoia about Mr. Dermatitis is contriving somehow to jettison me from the nadir via cabin 1009's vacuum toilet is at its emotional zenith. Haha, <laughs> hardy note, he's managed to use both nadir and zenith in the same sentence. Haha. <laughs> uh, is at its emotional zenith. And I've decided in advance to keep a real low journalistic profile at this event. I ask a total of just one little innocuous question right at the start. And Captain Nico responds with a witticism. <laughs> How do we start engines? <laughs> Not with the key of ignition, I can tell you. And that gets, a la- la- that gets a large and rather unkind laugh from the crowd. It turns out that the long, mysterious MV in MV Nader stands for Motorized Vessel. The MV Nader cost Two hundred fifty million three hundred ten thousand U.S. dollars to build. It was christened in Papenburg, F.R.G. in 1092, with a bottle of ouzo instead of champagne. The Nader's three onboard generators produce 9.9 megawatts of power. The ship's bridge turns out to be what lies behind the very intriguing triple-locked bulkhead near the aft towel cart on deck 11. The bridge is uh, where the equipments are, radars, indication of weathers, and all these things. Two years of sedulous postgraduate study is required of officer wannabes just to get a handle on the navigational math involved. Also, there is much learning for the computers. Of the 40 or so naderites at this lecture, the total number of women is zero. Captain Video is here, of course, celebrating the moment, from a camcorded crouch on the fleet bar's steel bar top. He is wearing a nylon warm-up suit of fluorescent maroon and purple that makes him look like a, a huge macaw, and his knees crackle whenever he shifts position and rehunches. By this time, Captain Video is really getting on my nerves. A deeply sunburned man next to me is taking notes with a Mont Blanc pen in a leather-bound notebook with Engler embossed on it. Footnote 112. Drink. 
All week, the Anglerites have been a fascinating subcultural study in their own right, moving only in herds and having their own special organized shore excursions and constantly reserving big party rooms with velveteen ropes and burly guys standing by them with their arms crossed, checking credentials. Ah, But there hasn't been room in this essay to go into any serious Englerology. Hari note. Oh my god, David Foster Wallace, that's a huge cop-out. He is taking all this time in this essay. In this section alone, he's just going minute by minute through this day, and now he's claiming that there's not enough space to go into who these Engler Corporation people are. Yeah, whatever, David Foster Wallace. End of footnote. Uh, um, uh, this guy is writing in a Mont Blanc pen in a Leathermount notebook with Engler embossed on it. Just one moment of foresight on the way from Ping Pong to Fleet Bar would have prevented my sitting here trying to take notes on paper napkins with a big felt-tip highlighter. The Nader's officers have their quarters, mess, and a private bar on deck three, it turns out. In the bridge also, we have different compass to see where we are going. The ship's four petrophilial turbines cannot ever be turned off except in dry dock. What they do to deactivate an engine is simply disengage its propeller. It turns out that parallel parking a semi on LSD doesn't even come close to what Captain G. Panagiotakis experiences when he docks the MV Nader. The angler man next to me is drinking a $5.50 slippery nipple, which comes with not one, but two umbrellas in it. The rest of the Nader's crew quarters are on deck two, which also houses the ship's laundry and the areas of processing of garbage and wastes. Like all megacruisers, the Nader needs no tugboat in port. This is because it's got, quote, the sternal thrusters and bow thrusters. Footnote 113. And not mercifully, bowel thrusters. End of footnote. And drink. The lecture's audience consists of bald, solid, thick-wristed men over 50 who all look like the kind of guy who rises to CEO a company out of that company's engineering department instead of some fancy MBA program. Footnote 114. Drink. Footnote 114. In other words, these are the self-made, brass-balled, no-bullshit type of older U.S. male whom you least want the dad to turn out to be when you go over to a girl's house to take her to a movie or something with dishonorable intentions rattling around in the back of your mind. Um, an Ur authority figure. End of footnote. A number of them are clearly Navy veterans or yachtsmen or something. They all compose a very knowledgeable audience and ask involved questions about the bore and stroke of the engines, the management of multiradial torque, the precise distinctions between a C-class captain and a B-class captain. My attempts at technical notes are bleeding out into the paper napkins until the yellow letters are all ballooned and goofy like subway graffiti. The male 7 and C cruisers all want to know stuff about the hydrodynamics of 
midship stabilizers. They're all the kind of men who look like they're smoking cigars, even when they're not smoking cigars. Everybody's complexion is hectic from sun and salt spray and a surfeit of slippery nipples. 21.4 knots is a 7NC megaship's maximum possible cruising speed. There's no way I'm going to raise my hand in this kind of crowd and ask what a knot is. Several unreproducible questions concern the ship's system of satellite navigation. Captain Nico explains that the Nader subscribes to something called GPS. This global positioning system is using the satellites above to know the position at all times, which gives these data to the computer. It emerges that when we are not negotiating ports and piers, a kind of computerized auto-captain pilots the ship. Footnote 115. Drink. Footnote 115. This helps explain why Captain G. Panagiotakis usually seems so phenomenally unbusy, why his real job seems to be to stand in various parts of the nadir and try to look vaguely presidential, which he would look presidential, that is, except for the business of wearing sunglasses inside, footnote 115a. All the ship's officers wore sunglasses inside, it turned out, and always stood off to the side of everything, with their hands behind their backs, usually in groups of three, conferring heretically in technical Greek. But which would look presidential, except for the business of wearing sunglasses inside, which makes him look more like a third-world strongman. And a footnote and sub-footnote. There is no actual tiller or con anymore, is the sense I get. There's certainly no protrusive-spoked wooden captain's wheel, like these that line the walls of the jaunty fleet bar, each captain's wheel centered with thole pins that hold up a small and verdant fern. 11.50 hours. There's never a chance to feel actual physical hunger on a luxury cruise, but when you've gotten accustomed to feeding seven or eight times a day, a certain foamy emptiness in the gut always lets you know when it's time to feed again. Among the Naderites, only the radically old and formalphiliacal hit luncheon at the five-star CR, where you can't wear sim trunks or a floppy hat. The really happening place for lunch is the buffet at the Windsurf Cafe, off the pools and plasticine grotto on deck 11. Just inside both sets of the windsurf's automatic doors, in two big bins whose sides are decorated to look like coconut skin, are cornucopia, cornucopiae of fresh fruit. Footnote 116, drink. Footnote 116, as God is my witness, no more fruit ever again in my whole life. End of footnote. In two big bins are cornucopiae of fresh fruit presided over by ice sculptures of a Madonna and a whale. The crowd's flow is skillfully directed along several different vectors so that delays are minimal, and the experience of waiting to feed in the windsurf cafe is 
not as bovine as lots of other 7NC experiences. Eating in the Windsurf Cafe, where things are out in the open and not brought in from behind a mysterious swinging door, makes it even clearer that everything ingestible on the nadir is designed to be absolutely top of the line. The tea isn't Lipton, but Sir Thomas Lipton, in a classy individual vacuum pocket packet of buff-colored foil. The lunch meat is the really good, fat-free and gristle-free kind that Gentiles usually have to crash kosher delis to get. The mustard is something even fancier tasting than Grey Poupon that I keep forgetting to write down the brand of. Oh, and the Windsurf Cafe's coffee, which burbles merrily from spigots in big brush steel dispensers. The coffee is, quite simply, the kind of coffee you marry somebody for being able to make. I normally have a firm and neurologically imperative one-cup limit on coffee. But the Windsurf's coffee is so good. Footnote 117. Drink. Footnote 117 on the coffee. And it's just coffee. Qua coffee. It's not blue mountain hazelnut half-calf or Sudanese vanilla with special chicory enzymes or any of that bourgeois. The Nader's is a level-headed approach to coffee that I hereby salute. End of footnote. All right. I normally have a firm and neurologically imperative one-cup limit on coffee, but the Windsurf's coffee is so good, and the job of deciphering the big yellow Rorschachian blobs of my navigation lecture notes is so taxing that on this day, I exceed my limit by rather a lot, which may help why the next few hours of this log get kind of kaleidoscopic and unfocused. 1240 hours. I, I seem to be out on nine aft hitting golf balls off an astroturf square into a dense mesh nylon net that balloons impressively out toward the sea when a golf ball hits it. Thanatotic shuffleboard continues over to starboard. No sign of 3P or any ping-pong players or any paddles left behind. Ominous little holes in deck, bulkhead, railing, and even the astroturf testify to my wisdom in having steered way clear of the AM darts tourney. 13-14 hours. I am now seated back in deck 8's rainbow room, watching Ernst, the Nader's mysterious and ubiquitous art auctioneer. Footnote 118. Drink. Footnote 118. Ernst, one of very, very few human beings I've ever seen who is both blonde and murine. Murine-looking. Ernst today is wearing white loafers, green slacks, and a flared sport coat, whose pink, I swear can be described only as menstrual. End of footnote. 
I'm watching Ernst, the nader's mysterious and ubiquitous art auctioneer, mediate spirited bidding for a signed Leroy Neiman print. Uh, let me iterate this. Bidding is spirited and fast approaching four figures for a signed Leroy Neiman print. Not a signed Leroy Neiman, a signed Leroy Neiman print. 1330 hours. Pulsar shenanigans join cruise director Scott Peterson and staff for some crazy antics and the men's best legs contest, judged by all the ladies at poolside. Starting to feel the first unpleasant symptoms of caffeine toxicity, hair tucked at staff suggestion into a complimentary Celebrity Cruises swim cap, I take full and active part in the predominant shenanigans, which consist mostly of a tourney-style contest where gals in the gal division and then guys in the guy division have to slide out on a plastic telephone pole slathered with Vaseline. Footnote 119. The pole, that is, slathered with Vaseline, not the guys. And face off against another gal or guy and try to knock each other off the pole and into the pool's nauseous brine by hitting each other with pillowcases filled with balloons. I make it through two rounds, and then I'm knocked off by a hulking and hairy-shouldered Milwaukee newlywed who actually hits me with his fist, which can happen for people who start to lose their balance and compensate by leaning far forward. Footnote 120, drink. Footnote 120. This is what I did. Lean too far forward and into the guy's fist that was clutching the hem of his pillowcase. Which is why I didn't cry foul. Even though the vision in my right eye still drifts in and out of focus, even back here on land a week later. End of footnote. I make it through two rounds, and then I'm knocked off by a hulking and hairy-shouldered Milwaukee newlywed who actually hits me with his fist, knocking my swim cap almost clear off my head and toppling me over hard to starboard into a pool that's not only got a really high N.A. content, but is also now covered with a shiny and full-spectrum scum of Vaseline and I emerge so icky and befouled and cross-eyed from the guy's right hook that I blow what should have been a very legitimate shot at the title in the men's best legs contest, in which I end up placing third. But I'm told later I would have won the whole thing, except for the scowl, the swollen and strabismic right eye, and the askew swim cap that formed a contextual backdrop too downright goofy to let the full force of my gam's shapeliness come through to the judges. 14.10 hours. I seem now to be at the daily arts and crafts seminar in some sort of back room of the Windsurf Cafe. And aside from noting that I seem to be the only male here under 70, and that the project under construction on the table before me involves 
popsicle sticks and crap and a type of glue too runny and instant adhesive to get my trembling, over-caffeinated hands anywhere near. Apart from all of this, I have absolutely no fucking idea what's going on. 14, 15 hours in the public loo of the elevators on deck 11 four, which has four urinals and three commodes, all vacuum suction, which if activated one after the other in rapid succession, produce a cumulative sound that is exactly like the climactic D minor to G sharp melisma at the end of the 1983 Vienna Boy Choir's seminal recording of the medievally lugubrious Tenebrae Facte Sunt. 14.20 hours, and now I am in Deck 12's Olympic Health Club, in the back area, the part that's owned by Steiner of London. Footnote 121, drink. Also in the ND known as Steiner Salons and Spas at Sea. End of footnote. Where the same creamy-faced French women who'd worked 311's crowd at Pier 21 now all hang out. And I'm asking to be allowed to watch one of the, quote, phytomer ionothermy combination treatment detoxifying inch loss treatments, unquote. Uh, footnote 122, but this is the other footnote that I'm going to defer and come back to. It's a deliciously long one. I'm, I'm asking to be allowed to watch one of these treatments that some of the heftier ladies on board have been raving about. And I'm being told that it's not really a spectator type thing, that there's nakedness involved, and that if I want to see a P slash ICTD-TILT, it's going to have to be as the subject of one. And between the quoted price of the treatment and the sensuous recall of the smell of my own singed nostril hair in Chem 205 in 1983, I opt to forfeit this bit of managed pampering. If you back off from something really big, the creamy ladies then try to sell you on a facial, which they say, quote, a great large number unquote, of male naderites have pampered themselves with this week. But I also declined the facial, figuring that at this point in the week, the procedure for me would consist mostly in exfoliating half-peeled skin. 1425 hours. Now I'm in the small public loo of the Olympic Health Club, a one-holer notable only because O. Newton-John's Let's Get Physical plays on an apparently unending loop out of the overhead speaker. I'll go ahead and admit that I have, this week, come in a couple times between UV bombardments and pumped a little iron here in the Nader's Olympic Health Club. Except in the OHC, it's more like pumping ultra-refined titanium alloy. All the weights are polished stainless steel. And the place is one of these clubs with mirrors on all four walls that force you into displays of public self-scrutiny that are as excruciating as they are irresistible. And there are huge and insectile-looking pieces of machinery that mimic the aerobic demands of staircases and rowboats and racing bikes and 
improperly waxed cross-country skis, etc., complete with heart monitor electrodes and radio headphones. And on these machines, there are people in spandex whom you really want to take aside and advise in the most tactful and loving way uh, not to wear spandex. 14.30 hours. We're back down in the good old rainbow room for Behind the Scenes, meet your cruise director, Scott Peterson, and find out what it's really like to work on a cruise ship. Scott Peterson is a deeply tan, 39-year-old male with tall, rigid hair, a constant, high-watt smile, an escargot mustache, and a gleaming Rolex. Basically the sort of guy who looks entirely at home in sockless white loafers and a mint-green knit shirt from Lacoste. He's also one of my least favorite Celebrity Cruises employees. Though with Scott Peterson, it's a case of mildly enjoyable annoyance rather than the terrified loathing I feel for Mr. Dermatitis. The very best way to describe Scott Peterson's demeanor is that it looks like he's constantly posing for a photograph that nobody is taking. Footnote 123. Drink! Footnote footnote 123. He's also a bit like those small-town politicians and police chiefs who go to shameless lengths to get mentioned in the local newspaper. Scott Peterson's name appears in each day's Nader Daily over a dozen times. Backgammon tournament with your cruise director, Scott Peterson. Or, the world goes round with Jane McDonald, Michael Mullane, and the Matrix Dancers, and your host, cruise director, Scott Peterson. Or, Fort Lauderdale disembarkation talk. Your cruise director, Scott Peterson, explains everything you need to know about your transfer from the ship in Fort Lauderdale. And etc. Ad nauseum. End of footnote. He mounts the Rainbow Room's low brass dais and reverses his chair and sits like a cabaret singer and begins to hold forth. There are maybe 50 people attending, and I have to admit that some of them seem to like Scott Peterson a lot and really do enjoy his talk. A talk that not surprisingly, turns out to be more about what it's like to be Scott Peterson than what it's like to work on the good old Nader. Topics covered include where and under what circumstances Scott Peterson grew up, how Scott Peterson got interested in cruise ships, how Scott Peterson and his college roommate got their first jobs together on a cruise ship, some hilarious boo-boos in Scott Peterson's first months on the job, Every celebrity Scott Peterson has personally met and shaken the hand of. How much Scott Peterson loves the people he gets to meet working on a cruise ship. How much Scott Peterson loves just working on a cruise ship in general. How Scott Peterson met the future Mrs. Scott Peterson working on a cruise ship. And how Mrs. Scott Peterson now works on a different cruise ship and how challenging it is to sustain an intimate relation as warm and in all respects wonderful as that of Mr. and Mrs. Scott Peterson when you, 
i.e. Mr. and Mrs. Scott Peterson, work on different cruise ships and lay eyes on each other only about every sixth week. Except uh, how, but now, Scott Peterson's tickled to be able to announce that Mrs. Scott Peterson happens to be on a well-earned vacation and is, as a rare treat, here this week cruising on the MV Nader with him, Scott Peterson, and is, as a matter of fact, right here with us in the audience today. And wouldn't Mrs. S.P. like to stand up and take a bow? I, I swear, I'm not exaggerating. This occasion is a real two-handed head-clutcher. Awesome in its ickiness. But now, just as I need to leave in order not to be late for 1,500 hours much-anticipated skeet shooting, Scott Peterson starts to relate an anecdote that engages my various onboard dreads and fascinations enough for me to stay and try to write down. Scott Peterson tells us how his wife, Mrs. Scott Peterson, was in the shower in the Mr. and Mrs. Scott Peterson suite on deck three of the Nader the other night when one hand goes up in this gesture of someone searching for just the right delicate term, when, when nature called. So Mrs. Scott Peterson apparently gets out of the shower, still wet, and sits down on Scott Peterson's stateroom's bathroom's commode. Scott Peterson, in her narrative aside, says how perhaps we've all noticed that the commodes on the MV Nader are linked to a state-of-the-art vacuum sewage system that happens to generate not a weak or incidental flush suction. Other Naderites besides me must fear their toilet because this gets a big, jagged, tension-related laugh. Mrs. Scott Peterson is sinking lower and lower in her salmon-colored chair. Footnote 124. Drink. Footnote 124. Mrs. S.P. is an ectomorphic and sort of leather-complected British lady in a big-brimmed sombrero. Which sombrero I observe her now taking off and stowing under her brass table as she loses altitude in the chair. End of footnote. Scott Peterson says, but so Mrs. Scott Peterson sits down on the commode, still naked and wet from the shower, and attends to nature's summons. And when she's done, she reaches over and hits the commode's flush mechanism. And Scott Peterson says that in Mrs. Scott Peterson's wet, slick condition, the incredible suction of the Nader's state-of-the-art VSS starts actually pulling her down through the seat's central hole. And apparently, Mrs. Scott Peterson is just a bit too broad a beam to get sucked down all the way and hurled into some abstract excremental void, but rather she sticks wedged halfway down in the seat's hole and she can't get out and is, of course, stark naked and starts screeching for help. By now, the live Mrs. Scott Peterson seems very interested in something going on down underneath her table and mostly only her left shoulder 
leather brown and stippled with freckles is is visible from where I where I'm sitting, and 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 Scott Peterson tells us that he Scott Peterson hears her and comes rushing into the bathroom from the state room where he'd been practicing his professional smile in the bedside table's enormous vanity mirror comes rushing in and sees what's happened to Mrs. Scott Peterson and tries to pull her out, her feet kicking pathetically and buttocks and popliteals purpling from the seat's adhesive pressure. But he can't pull her out. She's been wedged in too tight by the horrific vacuum sewage system suction. And so, thanks to some quick thinking, Scott Peterson gets on the phone and calls one of the Nader's staff plumbers. And the staff plumber says, Yes, sir, Mr. Scott Peterson, sir, I'm on my way. And Scott Peterson runs back into the bathroom and reports to Mrs. Scott Peterson that professional help is on the way, at which point it only then occurs to Mrs. Scott Peterson that she's starkers, and not not only are her ectomorphic breasts exposed to full eurofluorescent view, but a portion of her own personal pudendum is clearly visible above the rim of the occlusive seat that holds her fast. And and she screeches Britishly at Scott Peterson to, for the bloody love of Christ, do something to cover her legally betrothed nethers against the swart, blue-collar gaze of the impending staff plumber. And so Scott Peterson goes and gets Mrs. Scott Peterson's favorite sun hat, a huge sombrero. In fact, the very same huge sombrero Scott Peterson's beloved wife is wearing right, um, well, just a couple seconds ago, was wearing right here in this very rainbow room. And, but so, via the quick and resourceful thinking of Scott Peterson, the sombrero is brought from the stateroom into the bathroom and placed over Mrs. Scott Peterson's inbent, concave, naked thorax to cover her private parts. And the Nader's staff plumber knocks and comes in all over-large and machine-oil redolent with tool-built a, a jingle and, and badly out of breath, and, and sure enough, he's swart. And he comes into the bathroom, and he appraises the situation and takes certain complex measurements and performs some calculations and finally tells Mr. Scott Peterson that he thinks he, the staff plumber, can get, indeed get, Mrs. Scott Peterson out of the toilet seat, but that extracting that there Mexican fellow in there with Mrs. S.B. is going to be a whole nother story. <laughs> there were actually... <laughs> uh, that's quite the anecdote. There were three footnotes there that I'm going to come back to and just read before we continue on. The section is not over, by the way, but these are three footnotes that you can take three drinks of your drink with now. Um, when he goes back and he begins telling the story, uh, there's a part where he goes, the state-of-the-art vacuum sewage system starts actually pulling her down to the seat's central hole, footnote 125, drink. At this point in the anecdote, I'm absolutely rigid with interest an empathic terror, which will help explain why it's such a huge letdown when this whole anecdote turns out to be nothing but a cheesy Catskills-type joke, one that Scott Peterson has clearly been telling once a week for eons, although maybe not with poor Mrs. Scott Peterson actually sitting right there in the audience. 
and I find myself hopefully imagining all sorts of nuptial vengeance being wreaked on Scott Peterson for embarrassing Mrs. Scott Peterson like that. The dweeb. All right, that's footnote 125. Now, later on, he has a couple other footnotes where he describes Scott Peterson practicing his professional smile while Mrs. Scott Peterson screeches. And he says this is an authorial postulate, footnote 126. And then later when he says that um, there's a portion of her own personal pudendum is clearly visible above the rim of the occlusive seat that holds her fast, he says, footnote 127, this is again an authorial postulate, but it's the only way to make sense of the remedy she's about to resort to. At this point, I still don't know this is all just a corny joke. I am rigid and bug-eyed with empathic horror for both the intra- and extra-narrative Mrs. S.B. <laughs> Those were the three little footnotes there. All right, back to the essay. 1505 hours. I have darted just for a second into Deck 7's Celebrity Show Lounge to catch some of the rehearsals for tomorrow night's climactic passenger talent show. Two crew-cut and badly-burned U-Texas guys are doing a minimally choreographed dance number to a recording of Shake Your Groove Thing. Assistant Cruise Director Dave the Bingo Boy is coordinating activities from a canvas director's chair at stage left. A septuagenarian from Halifax, Virginia tells four ethnic jokes and sings one day at a time, sweet Jesus. A retired Century 21 realtor from Idaho does a long drum solo to Caravan. The climactic passenger talent show is apparently a 7NC tradition, as was Tuesday night's special costume party. Footnote 128. Drink. Footnote 128. It was this kind of stuff that, combined with the micromanagement of activities to make the nader weirdly reminiscent of the summer camp I attended for three straight Julys in early childhood. Another venue where the food was great and everyone was sunburned and I spent as much time as possible in my cabin avoiding micromanaged activities. End of footnote. Some of the Naderites are deeply into this stuff and have brought their own costumes, music, props. A lithe Canadian couple does a tango complete with pointy black shoes and an interdental rose. Then the finale of the PTS is apparently going to be four consecutive stand-up comedy routines delivered by very old men. These men totter on one after the other. One has one of those three-footed canes. Another, a necktie that looks uncannily like a Denver omelette. Another has an excruciating stutter. What follow are four successive interchangeable routines where the manner and humor are like exhumed time capsules of the 1950s. Jokes about how impossible it is to understand women, about how very much men want to play golf and how their wives try to keep them from playing golf, etc. The routines have the same kind of flamboyant unhipness 
that makes my own grandparents objects of my pity, awe, and embarrassment all at once. One of the senescent quartet refers to his appearance tomorrow night as a gig. The one with the tridential cane stops suddenly in the middle of a long joke about skipping his wife's funeral to play golf and pointing the cane's tips at Dave the Bingo Boy demands an immediate and accurate estimate of what the attendance will be for tomorrow night's passenger talent show. Uh, Dave the Bingo Boy sort of shrugs and look, looks at his emery board and says that it's hard to say that it like varies week to week, whereupon the old guy kind of brandishes his cane and says, well, it better be substantial because he goddamn well hates playing to an empty house. <laughs> Fifteen, twenty hours. The ND neglects to mention that the skeet shooting is a competitive organized activity. The charge is one dollar a shot. But you have to purchase your shots in sets of ten. And there's a large and vaguely gun-shaped plaque for the best X over ten score. I arrive at eight aft late. A male naderite is already shooting skeet, and several other men have formed a line and are waiting to shoot skeet. The nader's wake is a big, fizzy V way below the aft rail. Two sullen Greek NCOs run the show, and between their English and their earmuffs and the background noise of shotguns, plus the fact that I've never touched any kind of gun before and have only the vaguest idea of which end even to point, negotiations over my late entry and the forwarding of the skeet shooting bill to Harper's are lengthy and involved. I am seventh and last in line. The other contestants in line refer to the skeet as traps or pigeons, but what they really look like is tiny discuses, painted the day-glow orange of high-cost hunting wear. The orange, I posit, is for ease of visual tracking, and the color must really help, because the trim bearded guy in aviator glasses currently shooting is perpetrating absolute skeetocide in the air over the ship. I assume you already know the basic skeet shooting conventions from movies and TV. Um, the lackey at the weird little catapultish device, um, the bracing and pointing in order to pull, the combination thud and twang of the catapult, the brisk crack of the weapon, and the midair disintegration of the luckless skeet. Everybody in line with me is male though there are a number of females in the crowd that's watching the competition from the nine-aft balcony above and behind us. From the line, watching, three things are striking. A. What on TV is a brisk crack is here a booming roar that apparently is what a shotgun really sounds like. B. 
skeet shooting looks comparatively easy because now the stocky older guy who's replaced the trim bearded guy at the rail is also blowing these fluorescent skeet away one after the other so that a steady rain of lumpy orange crud is falling into the nader's wake. And see, a flying skeet, when shot, undergoes a frighteningly familiar-looking mid-flight peripatia, erupting material, changing vector, and plummeting seaward in a distinctive corkscrewy way that all eerily recalls footage of the 1986 Challenger disaster. There's a footnote here, footnote 129 on the skeet, so let's drink. Footnote 129 on the skeet. These skeet are made, I posit, from some kind of extra brittle clay for maximum frag. End of footnote. Striking thing B about skeet shooting looking comparatively easy turns out to be an illusion. One not like unlike the illusion I'd had about the comparative easiness of golf from watching golf on TV before I'd actually ever tried to play golf. The shooters who precede me do all seem to fire with a kind of casual scorn, and they all get 8 out of 10 or above. But it turns out that of these six guys, three have military combat backgrounds, and another two are insufferable East Coast retro yuppie brothers who spend weeks every year hunting various fast-flying species with their papa in southern Canada. And the last has not only his own earmuffs, plus his own shotgun in a special crushed velvet-lined case, but also his own skeet-shooting range in his backyard in North Carolina. Footnote 130 on backyard. Let's, let's drink to this one. Footnote 130 on this guy having his own skeet-shooting in, in his backyard. This footnote is just an exclamation mark. That's it. That's all in this footnote. Just an exclamation mark for the fact that this guy has his own skeet-shooting range in his backyard. And a footnote. When it's finally my turn, the earmuffs they give me have somebody else's ear oil on them and don't fit my head. The gun itself is shockingly heavy and stinks of what I'm told is cordite, small pubic spirals of which are still exiting the barrel from the Korea vet who preceded me and is tied for first with 10 out of 10. The two yuppie brothers are the only entrants even near my age. Both got scores of 9 out of 10 and are now appraising me coolly from identical prep school clouch positions against the starboard rail. The Greek non-coms seem extremely bored. I am handed the heavy gun and told to be bracing a hip against the aft rail and then to place the stock of the weapon against, no, not the shoulder of my hold-the-gun arm, but the shoulder of my pull-the-trigger arm. My initial error in this latter regard results in a severely distorted aim that makes the Greek by the catapult do a rather neat drop-and-roll.
Okay, let's not spend a lot of time drawing this whole incident out. Let me simply say that, yes, my own skeet shooting score was noticeably lower than the other entrance scores. And then simply make a few eh, disinterested observations for the benefit of any novice contemplating shooting skeet from the rolling stern of a 7NC megaship. And then we'll move on. Observation 1. A certain level of displayed ineptitude with a firearm will cause everyone in the vicinity who knows anything about firearms to converge on you all at the same time with cautions and advice and handy tips passed down from papa. Number two, a lot of the advice in number one boils down to exhortations to lead the launched skeet. But nobody explains whether this means that the gun's barrel should move across the sky with the skeet or should instead lie in a sort of static ambush along some point in the the skeet's projected path. Observation number three, TV skeet skeet shooting is not totally unrealistic in that you really are supposed to say pull and the weird little catapultish thing really does produce a twanging thud. Number four, whatever a hair trigger is, a shotgun does not have one. Observation number five, if you've never fired a gun before, the urge to close your eyes at the precise moment of concussion is, for all practical purposes, irresistible. Observation number six, the well-known kick of a fired shotgun is no misnomer. It does indeed feel like being kicked and hurts and sends you back several steps with your arms pinwheeling wildly for balance, which, when you're holding a gun, results in mass screaming and ducking, and then on the next shot, a, uh, a conspicuous thinning of the crowd in the nine-aft gallery above. And finally, footnote, uh, observation seven, know that an unshot Skeet's movement against the vast lapis lazuli dome of the open ocean sky is sun-like, i.e. orange and parabolic and right to left, and that its disappearance into the sea is edge-first and splashless and sad. 1,600 hours to 1,700 hours, lacuna. 1,700 hours to 1,815 hours, shower, personal grooming, third viewing of the heart-tweaking last act of Andre, attempted shower steam rehabilitation of wool slacks and funereal sport coat for tonight's five-star CR supper, which in the ND is designated sartorially formal. Footnote 131, and let's drink to this one. Footnote 131. Look, look, I'm not going to spend a lot of your time or my emotional energy on this, but if you are male and you ever do decide to undertake a 7 and C luxury cruise, 
be smart and take a piece of advice I did not take. Bring formal wear. And I do not mean just a coat and tie. A coat and tie are appropriate for the two 7NC suppers designated informal, which term apparently comprises some purgatorial category between casual and formal. But for formal supper, you are supposed to wear either a tuxedo or something called a dinner jacket that, as far as I can see, is basically the same as a tuxedo. I, dickhead that I am, decided in advance that the idea of formal wear on a tropical vacation was absurd, and I steadfastly refused to buy or rent a tux and go through the hassle of trying to figure out how even to pack it. I was both right and wrong. Yes, the formal wear thing is absurd, but since every Naderite except me went ahead and dressed up in absurd formal wear on formal nights, I, having of course ironically enough spurned the tux precisely because of absurdity considerations, I was the one who ends up looking absurd at formal five-star CR suppers. Painfully absurd in the tuxedo motif t-shirt that I wore on the first formal night. And then even more painfully absurd on Thursday in the funereal sport coat and slacks that I'd gotten all sweaty and rumpled on the plane and at Pier 21. No one at Table 64 said anything about the absurd informality of my formal supper dress. But it was a sort of deeply tense absence of comment which attends only the grossest and most absurd breaches of social convention and which, after the elegant tea-time debacle, pushed me right to the very edge of ship-jumping. Please, let my dickheadedness and humiliation have served some purpose. Take my advice and bring formal wear, no matter how absurd it seems, if you go. End of footnote. 1815 hours. The cast and general atmospherics of the five-star CR's T-64 have already been covered. Tonight's supper is exceptional only in its tension. The hideous Mona has, recall, opted to represent today as her birthday to Tibor and the maitre d', resulting tonight in bunting and a tall cake and a chair balloon, plus in watch tech, leading a squad of Slavic busboys in a ceremonial happy birthday mazurka around table 64, and an overall smug glow of satisfaction from Mona, who, when the tipster sets her cake down before her, claps her hand once before her face like a small, depraved child. And an expression of blank tolerance from Mona's grandparents that's impossible to read or figure. Additionally, Trudy's daughter Alice, whose birthday, recall, really is today, has, in silent protest against Mona's fraud, said nothing all week to Tibor about it, i.e. her own birthday, and sits tonight across from Mona wearing just the sort of face you would expect 
from one privileged child watching another privileged child receive natal treats and attentions that are by all rights her own. The result of all this is that stony-faced Alice and I... Footnote 132, let's drink. Stony-faced Alice and I... I... Uh, an I who recall am reeling from the triple whammy of first ballistic humiliation and then elegant tea-time disgrace, and now being the only person anywhere in sight in a sweat-crusted wool sport coat instead of a glossy tux, and I'm having to order and chug three Dr. Peppers in a row to void my mouth of the intransigent aftertaste of beluga caviar. End of footnote. The result of all this is that stony-faced Alice and I have tonight established a deep and high-voltage bond across the table, united in our total disapproval and hatred of Mana, and are engaging in a veritable ballet of coded little stab Mona, strangle Mona, and slap Mona pantomimes for each other's amusement, Alice and I are. Which I've got to say is for me a fun and therapeutic anger outlet after the day's tribulations. But the supper's tensest development is that Alice's mother and my own new friend Trudy, whose purslane and endive salad, rice pilaf, and tender medallions of braised veal are simply too perfect tonight to engage any of her critical attention, um, and who I should mention has all week made little secret of the fact that she's not exactly crazy about Alice's serious boyfriend Patrick or about his and Alice's serious relationship. Footnote 133, drink. Footnote 133 about Alice's serious relationship, which serious relationship apparently includes living together on Alice's dollars and co-owning Alice's 1992 Saab. End of footnote. Um, so that Trudy notices and misconstrues my and Alice's coded gestures and stifled giggles as signs of some kind of burgeoning romantic connection between us, and Trudy begins yet once again extracting and spreading out her purses four by fives of Alice and relating little tales of Alice's childhood designed to make Alice appear adorable and also talking Patrick down, and in general, I have to say, acting like a procurus. And and this would be bad enough, tension-wise, especially when Esther gets into the act. But now, poor Alice, who, even though deeply preoccupied with birthday deprivation and Mona hatred, is by no means dim or unperceptive, Alice quickly sees what Trudy is doing, and apparently terrified that I might possibly share her mother's perception of my connection with her as anything more than an anti-Mona alliance, Alice begins directing my way a kind of Ophelia-type mad monologue of unconnected Patrick references and Patrick anecdotes, all of which causes Trudy to start making her weird, dentally asymmetric grimace at the same time she begins cutting 
at her tender medallions of braised veal so hard that the sound of her knife against the five-star CR's bone china gives everybody at the table tooth shivers, and the mounting tension causes fresh sweat stains to appear in the underarms of my funereal sport coat and spread nearly to the perimeter of the faded, salty remains of Pier 21's original sweat stains. And when Tibor makes his customary post-entree circuit of the table and asks, How is all of everything? I am, for the first time since the educational second night, unable to say anything other than, Fine. Fine. 2045 hours. Celebrity Showtime. Celebrity Cruises proudly presents hypnotist Nigel Ellery, hosted by your cruise director, Scott Peterson. Please note, video and audio taping of all shows is strictly prohibited. Children, please remain seated with your parents during shows. No children in the front row. Celebrity Show Lounge. Other Celebrity Showtime headline entertainments this week have included a Vietnamese comedian who juggles chainsaws, a husband and wife team that specializes in Broadway love medleys, and most notably, a singing impressionist named Paul Tanner, who made simply an enormous impression on Table 64's Trudy and Esther, and whose impressions of Engelbert Humperdinck Tom Jones, and particularly Perry Como, were apparently so stirring that a second popular demand encore performance by Paul Tanner has been hastily scheduled to follow tomorrow night's climactic passenger talent show. Footnote 134. Drink. Footnote 134. Well, at least guaranteeing the old Naderite comedian with Kane a full house, I guess. And a footnote. Stage hypnotist Nigel Ellery is British. Footnote 135. Drink. Uh, his accent indicates origins in London's East End. Nigel Ellery is British and looks uncannily like 1950s B-movie villain Kevin McCarthy. Introducing him, cruise director Scott Peterson inv- informs us that Nigel Ellery, quote, has had the honor of hypnotizing both Queen Elizabeth II and the Dalai Lama. Footnote 136. Drink. Um, the footnote about uh, Nigel Ellery hypnotizing both Queen Elizabeth II and the Dalai Lama. Footnote is, not one would presume at the same time. And the footnote. Nigel Ellery's act combines hypnotic hijinks with a lot of rather standard borscht belt patter and audience abuse. And it ends up being such a ridiculously apposite symbolic microcosm of the week's whole seven and sea luxury cruise experience that it's almost like a setup, some weird form of journalistic pampering. First off, we learn that not everyone is susceptible to serious hypnosis. Nigel Ellery puts the CSL's whole 300-plus crowd through some simple in-your-seat tests 
footnote 137, but this is the, uh, the fourth footnote that I'm going to defer, come back to later. Simple, in your seed tests, to determine who in the CL cells crowd is suggestibly gifted enough to participate in the, quote, fun to come. Second, when the sixth most suitable subjects, all still locked in complex contortions from the in-your-seat tests, are assembled on stage, Nigel Ellery spends a long time reassuring them and us that absolutely nothing will happen that they do not wish to have happen and voluntarily submit to. He then persuades a young lady from, from Ekron that a loud male Hispanic voice is issuing from the left cup of her brassiere. Another lady is induced to smell a horrific odor coming off the man in the chair next to her. A man who himself believes that the seat of his chair periodically heats to 100 degrees centigrade. The other three subjects, respectively, flamenco, uh, believe they're not just nude, but woefully ill-endowed, and are made to shout, Mommy, I want a wee-wee, whenever Nigel Ellery utters a certain word. The audience laughs very hard at all the right times. And there is something genuinely funny, not to mention symbolic, symbolically microcosmic, about watching these well-dressed adult cruisers behave strangely for no reason they understand. It is as if the hypnosis enables them to construct fantasies so vivid that the subjects do not even know they are fantasies, as if their heads were no longer their own, which is, of course, funny. Maybe the single most strikingly comprehensive 7NC symbol, though, is Nigel Ellery himself. The hypnotist's boredom and hostility are not only undisguised, they are incorporated kind of ingeniously into the entertainment itself. Ellery's boredom gives him the same air of weary expertise that makes us trust doctors and policemen. And his Hostility, via the, the same kind of phenomenon that makes Don Rickles a big star in Las Vegas, I guess, is his hostility is what gets the biggest roars of laughter from the lounges crowd. The guy's stage persona is extremely hostile and mean. He does unkind imitations of people's U.S. accents. He ridicules questions from both the subjects and the audience. He makes his eyes burn Rasputinishly and tells people they're going to wet the bed at exactly 3 a.m. or drop trow at the office in exactly two weeks. The spectators, mostly middle-aged it looks like, rock back and forth with mirth and slap their knee and dab at their eyes with hankies. Each moment of naked ill-will from Ellery is followed by an enormous circumoral constriction and a palms-out assurance that he's just kidding and that he loves us and that we are a simply marvelous bunch of human beings who are clearly having a very good time indeed. For me, 
at the end of a full day of managed fun, Nigel Ellery's act is not particularly astounding or side-splitting or entertaining, but neither is it depressing or offensive or despair-fraught. What it is, is it's weird. It's the same sort of weird feeling that having an elusive word on the tip of your tongue evokes. There's something crucially key about luxury cruises and evidence here. Being entertained by someone who clearly dislikes you and feeling that you deserve the dislike at the same time that you resent it. All six subjects are now lined up doing syncopated rocket kicks, and the show is approaching its climax. Nigel Ellery at the microphone, getting us ready for something that will apparently involve furiously flapping arms and the astounding mesmeric illusion of flight. Because my own dangerous susceptibility makes it important that I not follow Ellery's hypnotic suggestions too closely or get too deeply involved, I find myself in my comfortable navy blue seat going farther and farther away inside my head, sort of creatively visualizing a kind of epiphanic Frank Conroy-type moment of my own, pulling mentally back, seeing the hypnotist and subjects and audience and celebrity show lounge and deck and then whole motorized vessel itself with the eyes of someone not aboard, visualizing the MV Nader at night, right at this moment, steaming north at 21.4 knots, with a strong, warm west wind pulling the moon backwards through a skein of clouds, hearing muffled laughter and music and Papa's throb and the hiss of receding wake and seeing, from the perspective of this nighttime sea, the good old nadir, complexly aglow, angelically white, lit up from within, festive, imperial, palatial, yes, this, like a palace. It would look like a kind of floating palace, majestic and terrible, to any poor soul out here on the ocean at night, alone in a dinghy, or not even in a dinghy, but simply and terribly floating, a man overboard, treading water, out of sight of all land. This deep and creative visual trance, and Ellery's true and accidental gift to me, this trance lasted all through the next day and night, which period I spent entirely in cabin 1009, in bed, mostly looking out the spotless porthole, with trays and various rinds all around me, feeling maybe a little bit glassy-eyed, but mostly good. Good to be on the nadir, and good soon to be off. Good that I had survived, in a way, being pampered to death, in a way. And so I stayed in bed. And even though the tranced stasis caused me to miss the final night's climactic PTS and the farewell midnight buffet and then Saturday's docking and a chance to have my after-photo taken with Captain G. Panagiotakis, subsequent entry into the adult demands of landlocked, real-world life wasn't nearly as bad as a week of 
absolutely nothing had led me to fear. 1995. That's the end of the essay. And now, let me go back and read the four footnotes that I had deferred. Okay, footnote 90. This is all the way back at the beginning of this section where he's describing the the uh, posters um, that show up in the Nader Daily about the misuse of drug acts, 1972. Footnote 90, so let's drink. Footnote 90, snippet of latter item, quote from the Misuse of Drug Act, 1972. All persons entering each island, question mark, are warned that it is a criminal offense to import or have possession of narcotics and other controlled drugs, including marijuana. Penalties for drug offenders are severe, unquote. Half of the port lecture, before we hit Jamaica, consisted of advice about stuff like two-timing street dealers who'll sell you a quarter ounce of crummy pot and then trot down to a constable and collect a bounty for fingering you. Conditions in the local jail are described just enough to engage the grimmer parts of the imagination. Celebrity Cruz's own onboard drug policy remains obscure. Although there are always a half-dozen humorless security guys standing burlily around the Nader's gangway in port, you never get searched when you reboard. I never saw or smelled evidence of drug use on the Nader. As with concupiscence, it just doesn't seem like that kind of crowd. But there must be colorful incidents in the Nader's past, because the cruise staff become almost operatic in their cautions to us as we headed back to Fort Lauderdale on Friday, though every warning was preceded by an acknowledgement that uh, the exhortation to flush or toss anything controlled surely couldn't apply to anyone on this particular cruise. Apparently, Fort Lauderdale's customs guys regard homebound 7 and C passengers sort of the way small-town cops regard out-of-state speedsters in Saab turbos. An old veteran of many 7NCLCs told one of the U-Texas kids ahead of me in the customs line the last day, quote, Kiddo, if one of those dogs stops at your bag, you better hope he lifts his leg. Unquote. That's the end of that footnote. Now let's skip to footnote 111. This is the one where he has this embarrassing incident in the uh, tea time. Footnote 111. Let's drink. Footnote 111. The fleet bar was also the site of elegant tea time later that same day, where elderly female passengers wore long white stripper gloves and pinkies protruded from cups, and where among my breaches of elegant tea time etiquette apparently were, A. Imagining people would be amused by the tuxedo-designed t-shirt I wore because I hadn't taken seriously the celebrity brochure's instruction to bring a real tux on the cruise. Uh, breach of etiquette B. Imagining the elderly ladies at my table would be charmed by the off-color 
Rorschach jokes I made about the rather obscene shapes that the linen napkins at each place were origami folded into. Breach of etiquette C. Imagining that these same ladies might be interested to learn what sorts of things have to be done to a goose over its lifetime in order to produce pâté-grade liver. Breach of etiquette D. Putting a three-ounce mass of what looked like glossy black buckshot on a big white cracker and then putting the whole cracker in my mouth. Breach of etiquette E. Assuming one second thereafter a facial expression that I'm told was, under even the most charitable interpretation, inelegant. Breach of etiquette F. Trying to respond with a full mouth when an elderly lady across the table with a pinzonez and buff-colored gloves and lipstick on her right incisor told me this was beluga caviar, resulting in F1, the expulsion of several crumbs and what appeared to be a large black bubble, and F2, the distorted production of a word that I was told sounded to the entire world like a genital expletive. Breach of etiquette G. Trying to spit the whole indescribable nauseous glob onto a flimsy paper napkin instead of one of the plentiful and sturdier linen napkins, with results I'd prefer not to describe in any more detail than as unfortunate. And breach of etiquette H. Concurring when the little kid in a bow tie and, no kidding, tuxedo shorts, seated next to me, pronounced beluga caviar blucky, with a spontaneous and unconsidered expression that was, indeed, and unmistakably a genital expletive. Ah, let us draw the curtain of charity over the rest of that particular bit of managed fun. This will, at any rate, explain the 1600 hours to 1700 hours lacuna in today's P&D log. And, <laughs> and now, footnote 122. Uh, this is where he's describing the, uh, uh, the health club, Steiners of London, where there was the phytomer ionothermite combination treatment detoxifying inch loss treatments that he really was curious about, but was told that he was not allowed to watch. Footnote 122. Let's drink. So that you can see why nobody with a nervous system would want to miss watching one of these, here's some hard data from the Steiner brochure. Ionithermy, how does it work? Firstly, you will be measured in selected areas. The skin is marked and the readings are recorded on your program. Different creams, gels, and ampules are applied. These contain extracts effective in breaking down and emulsifying fat. Electrodes using faradism and galvanism are placed in position and a warm blue clay covers the full area. We are now ready to start your treatment. The galvanism accelerates the products into your skin 
and afaridism exercises your muscles. Footnote 122a. This is a sub-footnote. So let's take a sub-drink, a little quick little sip. And as somebody who once brushed up against a college chemistry lab's live induction of coil and had subsequently to be pried off the thing with a wooden mop handle, I can personally vouch for the convulsive exercise benefit of ferratic current. Back to the uh, the Steiner of London uh, footnote read in the Steiner voice. The galvanism accelerates the products into your skin and the ferritism exercises your muscles. The cellulite or lumpy fat, which is so common amongst women, is emulsified by the treatment, making it easier to drain the toxins from the body and disperse them, giving your skin a smoother appearance. And that's the end of footnote 122. And now, ladies and gentlemen, I bring you the very last footnote in David Foster Wallace's essay, a supposedly fun thing I'll never do again. Here we go. Footnote number 137. This is the last footnote of the essay. This footnote is about Nigel Ellery putting the crowd through some simple in-your-seat tests. So let us drink to this footnote, footnote 137. On the test, the simple in-your-seat test to determine who in the crowd is gifted for hypnosis. One is, lace your fingers together and put them in front of your face and then unlace just your index fingers and have them sort of face each other and imagine an irresistible magnetic force drawing them together and see whether the two fingers do indeed, as if by magic, move slowly and inexorably together until they're pressed together, whirl to whirl. From a really scary and unpleasant experience in seventh grade, footnote 137a. So let's let's now dive into the sub-footnote and let's finish off our drinks here, ladies and gentlemen. Chug it down. This is the last sub-footnote. This is the end of the footnote. Last drink we will drink in this drinking game. Drink it down. From a really scary and unpleasant experience in seventh grade, footnote 137a, is when at a school assembly, a local psychologist put us all under a supposedly light state of hypnosis for some creative visualization. And 10 minutes, ten minutes later, everybody in the auditorium came out of the hypnosis, except, unfortunately, yours truly. And I ended up spending four irreversibly entranced and pupil-dilated hours in the school nurse's office, with the increasingly panicked shrink trying more and more drastic devices for bringing me out of it, and my parents very nearly litigated over the whole episode, and I calmly and matter-of-factly decided to steer well clear of all hypnosis thereafter." So, from this really scary and unpleasant exercise in seventh grade, I already know I am excessively suggestible. And so, I skip all the little tests, since no force on earth could ever get me up on a hypnotist stage in front of over 300 entertainment-hungry strangers. 
And that is the end of the essay, A Supposedly Fun Thing I'll Never Do Again, by David Foster Wallace, written in 1995. All right. Oh, my God. Are you still listening to this? Oh, I love you all so much. If you're still around and listening. Ah, wow. That is the end of that essay. So, first of all, congratulations if you have made it all the way through. That was an incredible uh, journey to be on. Uh, It is now... Let's see, 9.45, almost 10 o'clock by the time I'm finished. I started recording this at about 7. And, well, really, this essay, I started reading this essay about two weeks ago. And I started reading this two weeks ago while I was sick with COVID. I was recovering from COVID. uh, And at the time that I started doing this two weeks ago, it seemed like I was doing well. And I was hopeful, I was feeling some energy, and then the COVID symptoms came back. And so for the past two weeks, every day, I've been recording a different section of this essay. And 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 really, I, I began doing this partially to, to give people uh, a little bit of a respite, to, to see if I can contribute my storytelling skills and my reading skills in some way to help people take their minds off the, the pandemic for a little while. That's at least my, that was my intention when I started doing this uh, two weeks ago, when I was beginning to feel better coming out of COVID. But then when the COVID symptoms hit back again a second time, and I, I just kind of sunk back into the symptoms and I was struggling with the symptoms, but also struggling with just being in quarantine for that long, this kind of became a, a daily ritual. I, I needed to record these sections every evening just for my own sanity, and I, I have no idea how many of you are actually listening um, and how many of you are actually been listening this far into this hideously long episode. But I just want to thank you. If you have made it this far, thank you for listening. Um, I've been wanting to podcast and restart my podcast for a while, and this seemed a good way to, to begin it. And now that this this episode, this this essay is over, I'm going to continue podcasting. Hari Cuts is going to broadcast every night. I'm going to tell some stories of my own. Um, I, I particularly enjoyed reading um, David Foster Wallace. I, I don't know whether you actually enjoyed listening <laughs> as much as I, as I enjoyed reading. As I mentioned starting out, he's a very challenging writer to read out loud because of all his different footnotes. And I have no doubt that for many of you, it was probably really challenging to listen. I have no idea what it's like to listen to David Foster Wallace being read out loud like this. And so I want to step away from from reading aloud for a little while now. And I want to just tell you stories, uh, tell you my own stories, tell you stories about uh, stuff that I've read in the news. And, And I want to hold on to that basic premise of giving you stories that help you take your mind away from from the pandemic and the, the, the situations that we're in. But I also want to be just genuinely me in these podcasts and and uh, give you some commentary about what life is like in these in these pandemic times. So please stay tuned. Harry Cuts is going to continue every day. Uh, I may at some point 
come back and read a different essay by David Foster Wallace or read a couple of other essays. I wouldn't mind essays by uh, Douglas Adams, for example, to read, or maybe some poems by Rumi. Um, but for now, uh, I will just say that reading this essay, a supposedly fun thing I'll never do again, has itself been a supposedly fun thing that I will never do again. Um, I'll see you again tomorrow when I'll have a new story, my own story, a story that I read in the news from about a year ago from more innocent times about a camel named Kaspar. So until then, I hope you all stay safe, stay home, stay healthy, and stay human. Thank you.